Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. If you've got about 20 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the Old Dogs ramble about suspicious senior discounts. We discover that the secret to eternal youth appears to be hauling lobster traps. Who knew? We challenge you with another installment of What Year Was It? We announce, after 18 years, the launch of a new album by, yes, the Rolling Stones. And we ask the question the whole world is not asking, should Oregon cede territory to Idaho? The Old Dog's conversation is with Martin Langford, a self-proclaimed journeyman musician who after five decades continues to support himself and his wife by making music. Stay with us. Well, uh, Paul, is there anything on your mind today? Uh, yeah, there is some on my mind. It's something really trivial, as usually mm-hmm. our conversations <laughs> are. It has to do with senior discounts. Okay. I don't know about you, but I get a ton of mailings featuring senior discounts. We want your business come into our restaurant, come into our store. Uh, mm-hmm. There are sometimes special senior days. Costco for a while was allowing seniors to come in an hour early. Um, oh, yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, but you had to be diseased, I think, in order to do oh, that. Oh, no, just be senior. But, you know, it just raises the question. Now, what is a decent discount, and mm-hmm. what's kind of going on there? Why do they want me to come into their business? Well, I guess it depends on the nature of the discount. If, for example, it is a continuing discount, then I suppose a lower percentage would be okay because if you're going to shop there every week, you could save some money that way. But if it's like an introductory discount, then I think it should be substantial, like half off, half price. Oh, man, you're aiming high. Absolutely, if it's an introduction. I was going to say 20% gets my attention. Well, yeah, but on a regular basis, I don't know. I Depends if it's Target, for example. Heck, I would take 10% because I shop Target every week. Uh, uh, I think I have probably seen you or your brother in, in Target <laughs> frequently. Every week. Uh, well, you know, what, you know what I also suspect? Uh, hmm. You know, a lot of these restaurants have special senior menus. Menus, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and so there's a discount involved with that. But, yeah. you know, I suspect it's smaller portions, smaller plates. Have you ever gone into a restaurant and ordered from the senior menu? Never, not ever. It's usually broth. It's still, You're still old, Jim. You know, not ordering from the menu doesn't make you younger. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, it does? Okay. Yeah. Well, especially if I go to the kids' menu. You order from the kids' menu, do you? Hey, if I can get away with it, sure. Okay. Do you have to talk in baby talk to, to, to suck that? My a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do you think it's demeaning? Do you think they're talking down to us? Frankly, Paul, I don't know what the point is. Tell you what, here is the problem with restaurants is that people who really understand restaurants, like restaurant owners, know that any patron is only going to go there at the most six times a year. So what do they gain from that sort of discount? Really, nothing. They don't get a, a, a weekly patron. Nobody goes to the same restaurant every week unless it's, you know, guy's day at breakfast, you know, at Denny's, something like that. Uh, guy's day at Denny's. Now, that yeah. sounds like a different occasion. Um, you know, I, I understand. You, they don't expect you to come every week, but they would like to have a larger volume of folks our age. You know, even if we only come six times a year, if they can attract 
couple of hundred people that come six times a year. That's a significant uh, jack in their business. Maybe. But how long is that patronage going to last, Paul? Well, in your case, uh, they'll probably not invite you back. <laughs> well, here's the dude that orders off the child's menu. Yeah, get him out of here quick, will you? And no refills on his coffee. <laughs> the Washington Post has found a way to stay young, hauling lobster traps. In a recent article, they profiled Virginia Oliver, a local legend in Maine, who's been harvesting lobsters since she was eight years old. So three days a week, Virginia pilots her boat, hauls in her lobster traps, and then measures and bans the claws of her catch. Her son comes along to help, but since he's 80 years old, he has some limitations. Oh, by the way, we forgot to mention that Virginia is 103, <laughs> and she's been harvesting lobsters for 95 years. Her <laughs> advice is, you gotta keep moving. I intend to do this until I die. That a way to howl at the moon, Virginia. Well, I don't know. I think when I hit 103, I'm not going to want to do lobster traps. How about you? Well, I think on the way I might apply for a job with her. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we boomers have witnessed a lot of events over our lifetimes, right? But can you remember what happened when... We're going to give you a series of events, and you guess what year it is. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was Ted Vinson. The Today Show premiered on NBC featuring Dave Garraway. An American in Paris won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Puerto Rico became a self-governing commonwealth of the United States. The United Nations begins work in their new headquarters in New York City. The first hydrogen bomb was detonated on any wet talk atoll in the Marshall Islands. A mechanical heart was used for the first time in a human. 13-year-old Jimmy Boyd's recording of I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus sells three million records. And finally, Christine Jorgensen of Denmark became the recipient of the first successful sexual reassignment operation. All right, have you guessed it? Chances are you were still playing pom-pom pull-away on the playground. The decade was the 50s, and the year was 1952. And for many of us, you were there. The New York Times recently reported on the status of the Rolling Stones. It's been 18 years since their last album of original songs, and they're about to release a new LP called Hackney Diamonds. According to Mick Jagger, the band had dithered and procrastinated long enough. They had a series of unproductive studio sessions that unfinished songs were stacking up. The problem was that no one was being the taskmaster. So they went several generations back and engaged 32-year-old Andrew Watt, a Grammy-winning producer, to keep them on track. His solution was to move fast. The album was completed in months rather than years, or decades for that matter. So now the Stones will be going out on tour, of course. Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, Ronnie Wood, and a new drummer named Steve Jordan, who replaced the deceased Charlie Watts. It will be good to hear some new music from the Stones, who have grown older, but still haven't grown up. You know, when uh, when I was looking this over, do you realize Mick Jagger is 80, uh -huh. Keith Richards is 79, Ron Wood is 76, mm -hmm. 
you know, with their lifestyle, isn't it amazing to you they have lived so long? Well, it's become a joke, especially Keith Richards. You know, they keep saying, why is that guy still alive? And they were asking yeah. that when he was in his 30s. So yeah. he, I think we... Well, you know, if they're going out on tour. I guess the groupies are getting older. Yeah. And backstage, instead of drugs, they're popping Excedrin extra strength. Yeah. Well, I'm popping it, too, and I'm not even going backstage. And now it's time for Quick Takes. Three news items not worth more than a quick mention. Take one. Smuckers, the folks that brought you a range of jellies and Jif peanut butter, have acquired Hostess Brands, the makers of Ho-Hos, Twinkies, and Ding-Dongs. Apparently it was a sweet deal they couldn't pass up. Take two. NASA will take on the challenge of studying mysterious flying things. The first step was changing the name of unidentified flying objects to unidentified anomalous phenomena. The hope is that changing the name to something unpronounceable will reduce sensational speculation. And finally, take three. Former President Trump's mugshot has proved to be a marketing bonanza for people both for and again Trump's candidacy. The Trump campaign claims to have taken in $7.1 million since the photo was published. And the anti-Trump Lincoln Project is offering 10 different items for sale featuring the mugshot, including a mugshot glass. The Washington Post last month reported that there is a movement in Oregon to shift the border with Idaho 270 miles west, which would decrease Oregon by over half and grow Idaho substantially. It's called the Greater Idaho Movement. Well, like most things these days, it pits liberals against conservatives. Oregon is a blue state with 30% more Democrats than Republicans. Idaho is a deep red state with Republicans outnumbering Democrats by 5 to 1. The two states completely disagree on matters such as gun control, abortion, environmental regulations, and drug legalization. What's in dispute is the part of Oregon east of the Cascades. This region accounts for less than 10% of the population, but most of Oregon's territory. The area is rural and conservative, with more in common socially and politically with Idaho. Nearly 9 in 10 Oregonians live west of the Cascades, which includes the cities of Portland, Eugene, and Salem. This narrow strip of land is predominantly Democratic, including the state legislature in Salem. For now, it is mainly an area of discontent. The process of actually moving the border is problematic. It would require the approval of the state legislatures in both states, plus final approval by the U.S. Congress. You know, some it ain't going to happen. Nah. To the objective observer, this appears to be another unsolvable them versus us issue that is occurring all over the country and playing out as a form of reality TV on the nightly news. You know, why stop there? Maybe we should make all states the same size. How about that? <laughs> well, and the same color. Purple. Yeah, there you go. You, you give a big chunk of New York to New Jersey and maybe some to Connecticut. <laughs> Martin Langford is proof that you can make a living and enjoy living by playing music. Even in his teens, he was playing for pay all over Houston with an ability to play all sorts of wind instruments and all sorts of musical styles. He was even instrumental in the founding of Houston's famous high school for performing and visual arts. As a teacher, 
Martin has helped launch the careers of dozens of successful performers, and he's still at it today. Martin, you have spent your life as a professional musician. Uh, can you give us some idea of how that job has changed over the years? Well, it's it's changed a lot through the years. You know, uh, back in from 1973 to about 1988, I worked six nights a week in clubs because back then every club had a house band, you know, so you went to the same job every night, you know, playing together every night with the same people, you know, it's like a football team. It's like any other type of team. We had some incredible bands in the town at that time. And, you know, now the places that have bands have a different band every night. Uh, of course, back then, I think I was making $350 a week to work six nights a week, five hours a night. But I bought a house on that kind of money. You know? So uh, playing the gigs aren't the only thing that's changed. How far your money goes has changed. Uh, also, when I first started playing, when I came back from North Texas, a lot of the bands, say like Marvin Gaye and the Four Tops and stuff, they'd pick up a horn section and carry them for a, a couple of months. You know, They wouldn't necessarily take them on the whole tour because we're just the horn section. But uh, after a few years, they got to where they knew enough guys in each town to where they just come and use a pickup horn section, you know. So uh, then, of course, I went on the road with my own band doing little club jobs in, well, small towns in Louisiana and uh, even Harker Heights in uh, close to Fort Hood. Travel got to where, it was, after 9-11, travel got to where it wasn't any fun anymore. Now, when did the club scene kind of start shrinking and you had to do more uh, traveling? Well, the club scene, you know, the hotel clubs like uh, the Rama Room at the Ramada Inn, they started they started closing down and going to weekends only pretty much by the early 80s. And then you still had a few clubs that would have a house band like Cody's. They had house bands. In fact, I worked there the whole year of 1980 and the whole year of 1984 at that place. So there was still a little bit of steady work. When you talk about cover bands, for the listeners who aren't familiar with that, you're talking about uh, uh, playing music that others have made famous, uh, that, that they have written and made uh, famous so that people want to hear that music. Uh, exactly. And you, you kind of get a love-hate relationship with playing that kind of music, don't you? Well, yeah, you do. There's, you know, especially if you get in a band where the band leader calls the exact same sets every night. Right. You really, the one thing you do, if you have if you have improvised solos in those songs, you find yourself playing the same solo, the same improvised solo every night because you've done it so much. <laughs> Would you consider Houston a good community for supporting musicians? Uh, not really. Uh, you know, even the musicians in Houston have a tendency not to go out and hear live music. On the other hand, I've always found it one of the easiest towns to make a living in as a musician. Uh, you know, there's enough corporate things go on in Houston, enough conventions come to town. Uh, used to be enough, there used to be some fashion shows, you know, you get to play, play next to the runway and watch the girls walk down. There was, uh, there was a lot more variety of work for many years. Now what I do, I come back here every Wednesday or Thursday and I 
play gigs and teach private lessons Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and I go back to the Hill Country on Sunday, and I canoe and kayak and, and play my flute on the veranda. <laughs> so it's my semi-retirement. I can still come back to Houston and make a chunk of money and then go up there and enjoy it. If somebody asked you, would you consider yourself a blues musician, a jazz musician? What's your preference? I prefer jazz above all else because I consider it the most, as as far as theory and being able to play it, I've considered it the most difficult stuff to play, which has always kind of been what I like to try and do. Uh, but the truth of the matter is I would most likely be considered a journeyman musician. Uh, I'll pretty much play anything that people want me to play. I'm on three Grammy winners through the years. Uh, in 1973, I was on uh, Freddie Fender's uh, Before the Next Teardrop Falls. And then in, uh, I think, 1999, I was on Kirk Franklin's Rebirth uh, live concert DVD. And then 2005, I was on Little Joey La Familia, the best Tejano album of the year. Uh, that's that's kind of what I do. Anybody that calls, I try and be, you know, I try and be as Latin as I can be when I get a Latin job, you know, whatever. For a long time, I played every Friday at Beth Yashurin, the first Friday of every month at Beth Yashurin, because I like playing the Jewish klezmer-style clarinet. Mm -hmm. And I would get called from uh, these calls from Hasidic bands out of New York. And uh, they'd say, uh, Marty, I hear you're the best Jewish clarinet player in Houston. I said, well, uh, I'm not actually Jewish, but I really enjoy playing Jewish clarinet. He said, oh, we don't care what where you go to church. You know, as long as you can play the Jewish clarinet. You know, I really had some fun with those bands, you know, because <laughs> you'll, start, you'll start one song and it'll last for 55 minutes. Right. You just turn pages without, without <laughs> stopping. They call it a dance. They say, we'll be doing two, maybe three dances tonight. You know, that, that means, you know, you're going to have the horn on your face for about an hour at yeah. a time. There's one aspect of our business that I'd really like to get your opinion on, Martin, uh, and that has to do with the fact that there is so much electronification of music now that um, clubs and restaurants and all kinds of venues where we used to play, you know, three, four, five pieces uh, are now just one guy playing uh, whatever instrument he plays and backed right. up by a whole orchestrated sound uh, machine uh, because they you can do that now. So the guy just gets the one payment. There's just one guy in the band now. Well, I actually do that, but I, I, I price myself to the point where I can offer them a trio for the same price. And because I'd much rather play with other people. Mm -hmm. And just play with the, the the arrangements that I that I stuck on my iPad, mm -hmm. but most of the time I charge them one hundred and fifty dollars an hour with a two hour minimum, and so you know that that comes up to three hundred bucks. And I said, well, or I can get you a, a bass player and a piano player with me for the same money for those two hours. Mm -hmm. And we'll all make a hundred dollars. You know, I'd rather mm -hmm. make a hundred dollars and play with two other people than make $300 and have to slip the equipment. And plus playing two solid hours with no other musicians, that's kind of hard on the face. Yeah. Uh, so a young musician coming up, what kind of encouragement do you give them or are you pretty realistic? Well, you know, I really don't get too much into what their goals are or what the reality is of being a musician, uh, 
But, uh, you know, most of my students go to the high school for the performing and visual arts. You know, when I graduated, there were very few degree plans for jazz musicians. You know, when I was in school, if it was three and comp, you're talking Mozart mm-hmm. and the 1700s, you know, but, uh, now they have such, such incredible degrees and, you know, you can come out of college and not be looking at being an assistant band director somewhere. You can look at going right in and teaching at a junior college or at a college level. So uh, there are there are more opportunities for musicians in the non-playing area. One student that graduated this year, I had, I had actually stopped teaching him. Sometimes when my students get to a certain level, I'll send them to another teacher for, like, I'll send them to David Caceres for improvisation while I work on their clarinet and flute with them. And uh, so this Desmond hadn't been with me for a while, but he's got a he's got a, a free ride up at the Manhattan School of Music for, for like four or five years now, you know. So he's, he was a, an amazing student. My most amazing student was a little girl that came up to about my shoulder, and she... She plays all of them now. She, I, I wouldn't be surprised if she plays piccolo now, but she plays flute, clarinet, soprano, alto, tenor, and barry sax, and she owns them all. And she can sight read as well as any pro in this town. Uh, she, has a, she has a free ride out to UPAC, the University of the Pacific, outside of San Francisco. And uh, for all their incoming freshmen this year, they took them all to Europe for two weeks Uh just because for all the kids, because everybody that's there is on scholarship. I think hers is something like 48,000. Wow. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's, it's fun. I've got a kid right now that may pass them all. He's a sophomore at HSPBA and he just came in uh, first tenor in the, uh, in the HISD Katy region for the uh, all state jazz tryouts. And he taped for the state competition this past Tuesday. So I started him with uh, as a beginner before the pandemic, and then we did some Zoom lessons, and those weren't working out too well for beginners. And but he just kept working at it, and uh, he took a little from David Caceres, and then he came back to me recently, and he's just uh, he's actually I was I had his father in my Young Sounds band that I had back in the 1990s. His father was just a freshman at, in high school at the time, and so I had him in my band, and now. Now I've got his son. Jeez, Martin, and, you are and, really old. Yeah, I know. His, really grand, his grandfather and I still work together in Doppelgang. <laughs> you know, Martin, there's, there's no required retirement age for you. What's How long are you going to keep going at this, splitting your time between Houston and the Hill Country? Well, the main thing that happened is my daughter had a baby. And she lives just a few blocks from us. And now he's five years old and started elementary school on the street behind our house. So it's going to be really hard to get my wife full time up to the hill country with the grandbaby just a couple of blocks away. Uh, So I'm thinking once he gets to be about seven or eight years old and he has interest rather than hanging out with his grandmother, uh, that might get us up there. As it is, I go up every week. And my wife goes up about every second or third time with me. So uh, I get plenty of alone time. You know. Which, well, what about giving lessons and playing? Going to keep that going until... Uh... Well, you know, every time I start a student, it's a responsibility. There's a lot of teachers that just look at this, each student as a paycheck. 
But I, when a student starts with me, I figure I've got to keep him until he gets into college. And so I've got a kid right now that's just going to be auditioning for HSPVA. So if he, if he makes HSPVA, I'll be stuck here another four years. Huh. If he doesn't, I'm probably going to drop him. Right now, I've got a kid that's a sophomore at HSPVA, and he might be the best tenor player I've ever turned out. You know, when I say I've turned out, you know, the kids are the ones that do all the work. You know, I, I really can't stand teachers that take all the credit for producing these students, you know. The teacher's job is to really just to steer them, you know. And when you get students like I've got that are so self-motivated, you know, I don't have to do much in the way of steering. I just nudge to keep them from getting any bad habits. My job has been real easy for me just because I get such a high quality of student, you know. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.